The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Mike Santoli, live at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Cramer has the morning off. We officially say goodbye to summer and begin the fall push with a busy week, an Apple event, a conference season, Powell on Thursday, ECB. Futures are getting a lift here after a rough couple of weeks. A roadmap begins with markets looking to rebound, coming off a three-week loss. The Nasdaq trying to avoid its seventh straight day of losses. And OPEC Plus surprising the energy markets, agreeing to cut production targets by about 100,000 barrels per day starting in October. And Ukrainian President Zelensky is set to virtually ring the opening bell right here at the New York Stock Exchange. We will take you there live when that happens. Let's begin with stocks uh, trying to rally a bit uh, in uh to the shortened week of trading. Got this new note from Goldman's Jan Hatias today about the Fed over the weekend saying that they believe the U.S. can, in fact, achieve a soft landing, even though the path is narrow. Uh, Jan argues three things, guys. One is you need to see below trend growth. We definitely are getting that. Uh, Some rebalancing in the labor market, that's coming along. And then uh, a large decline in inflation, which they think has been particularly encouraging. And they even suggest that shelter Rent yep. growth might slow in the months to come. Some of the things that were considered to be a little stickier, uh, cooperating at least in the short term. And, um, you know, I, I, think, I think it's always been the case that it's been uh, a tricky equation to get to a soft landing. We've all acknowledged that uh, at times in June it looked like it was virtually impossible. Now with uh, Friday's jobs number, it seems like, okay, maybe we can uh, get back to a 50-50. I don't know. Also, what are we defining as a soft landing? We had a couple of quarters of negative GDP, you know, below trend growth for a considerable amount of time is what Powell's looking for. Um, And the markets sort of reflect that to a degree. I mean, that and really the ambiguity around that. Um, It looks like the market's been very resilient today to a lot of the global headlines over the past three days, which is true. But also we lost a percent and a half in the S&P in the last four hours of trading on Friday. So keep in mind where we where we are and where we came from. Um, 3,900 is being treated as relatively important on the S&P, just level wise. Um, It's one of those situations where you can be impressed with the way the market has kind of attempted to to regroup. At the same time, you say the the don't overthink it rule still favors the bears, right? I mean, it's September, Fed's tightening into a slowdown, Treasury yields 10-year above 3%. That's basically when the market peaked in August is when they crossed back above 3%. Um, And, you know, the trend is lower and the dollar is higher. So all these things say uh, that the keep it simple rule is uh, stay cautious. And yet the market uh, has, has priced in a lot of tough stuff already. I mean, you, don't, you just don't know uh, if it's enough, uh, I guess, is the big, right. always the big question. Well, and then meanwhile, we have this ongoing, I don't know, debate between the Goldman side and the Morgan Stanley side. Yeah. Uh, today, it's Mike Wilson. We think the next several quarters will end up containing some of the most significant downward revisions to forward EPS forecasts we've seen in the past several cycles. Um, doubling down on on what's been a net bearish position. Yeah, what I think is even more fun is it's the Morgan Stanley versus J.P. Morgan. So it's the old house of Morgan is is, is kind of 
uh, in opposition right here because J.P. Morgan has been a little more resolutely bullish on the equity side of things. But Mike Wilson's been very consistent. He's more or less been correct in terms of this valuation compression all year, rates going higher, inflation being an issue. He was early on that. Uh, and now the big question is, do, do earnings have to really succumb? That's been, um, the, that's been the key question for a long time. And, and you know, those, yeah. those allocators of capital that I know that have chosen to raise cash dramatically over the last few months and watched while we had that significant bear market rally yeah. hung in there uh, and perhaps are going to end up proving right with that basic thesis being that come the fall, which we are now unfortunately moving <laughs> into, uh, we are going to start to see significant revisions in yeah. terms of earnings. Uh, which obviously Wilson is making the case for. Absolutely. And it's been reluctant. You know, outside of energy, you're you're projecting a slight decline in earnings for the year in the S&P 500. I mean, it's minimal. And he makes the point that analysts and companies have been very, very hesitant to do the big cuts. Uh, They've just been trimming. You talk about Forex and little moderation in demand. Um, And that is the big question. You know, it also is the case, based on the concentration of the index and the concentration of earnings power, that you need to see numbers come down in a big way from the big growth stocks. I mean, Apple, Microsoft, they have to come down a fair bit in order to have a real washout in S&P 500. Would you say Apple was now 7%? 7.3 or so percent of the the S&P. It's a little less than that in terms of earnings contribution because the stock is much more expensive than the average stock in the market and the index as a whole. Uh, so it's plenty. No, uh, I'm, I'm happy to move on if okay, you want, yeah. Carl. Well, I mean, the European energy situation yeah. is one we have to discuss and certainly yeah. hope that we will at some point because it does have broad ramifications as well, not just for obviously markets over there, but our markets yeah. as well. Uh, and, and political uh, changes too in the UK. Let's begin with, with the markets, as David said. Uh, joining us this morning, Wells Fargo Investment Institute, Samir Samana and Rockefeller Global Family Office CIO, Jimmy Chang. Guys, it's great to have you back. Hope you had a great holiday. Samir, let me begin with you. I mean, we are going to get uh, deeper into conference season, and there has been this lingering uh, thought that that's when the rubber will hit the road and some of these uh, downward forecasts for EPS uh, will eventually come to fruition. Do you see that happening in the next couple of weeks? You know, we do. I mean, it's just, you know, the longer we go, the more the economic data deteriorates, the more the macro gets to be a little bit more tricky with respect to margins, with respect to interest rates. And so, you know, that cut's going to come. Um, we're not as, you know, I guess driven by when those happen. I think for us, it's it's more about risk versus reward. And as Mike mentioned, you know, look, there's a lot of things that, you know, come out as negative right now. And so we'd much rather be kind of a little bit cautious right now with the optionality to get a little bit more aggressive if the market were to fall further. Interesting. Jimmy, you think um, the resolute uh, nature of the Fed commentary gets tested here by uh, what, what some might argue are some stagflationary signals? Well, when inflation is above 8% and we have a very strong job market, it will be a dereliction of duty for the Fed not to sound very hawkish. So I don't think they're being tested right now. The question is really fast forward a few quarters when unemployment rates start to move higher. You have clear sign of things slowing and perhaps of a recession. Uh, that's the time the Fed will have to uh, you know, be tested and whether they will be fighting inflation or pivot back to help the economy. Well, a few quarters, you say. I mean, there's a lot can happen uh, in the next, whatever, nine uh, or 12 months or something like that. I wonder, uh, from here on out, does it matter much if the Fed, Jimmy, goes 75 basis points in September or 50 and then says that's probably the last, you know, supersized hike we have to worry about. And then it's a little more data dependent. We see how the economy fares from here. 
Yeah, I think whether it's 50 basis per month or, you know, or 75 depends also on the CPI data that comes out next week. Uh, I'm more in the, you know, leaning towards a 50 basis point camp now, given that we're, you know, you know seeing clear signs of some deceleration in pricing from gasoline to used car prices. Uh, but whether it's 75 or 50, it doesn't really matter. I think it's really the terminal rate. And I think the expectation is for about 3.75 to 4%. And the Fed is likely to try to stay at that level for a while. But, you know, as I've said, uh, things will change, whether it's in a few quarters or a few months, we'll see. Um, but I do think, um, you know, given the macro backdrop, when you look at the big picture, a recession appears unavoidable. Samir, um, I did kind of list all the, uh, the, the challenges that are known and right in front of us in terms of just the trend in the seasonals and what the Fed is doing uh, and all the rest of it. And valuation does not necessarily uh, certainly turn cheap. But I do wonder what you make of either uh, the fact that the market has shown a little bit of an ability to stay above the lows uh, and then this general sense out there that pe- pretty much everyone thinks they're going to have a chance to buy it lower in the fourth quarter as far as I can tell. You know, I think the tricky part is the market's become very short-term. So I think people are literally trading day-to-day, week-to-week, and I think they're saying, you know, look, you know, until quantitative tightening kicks up in the middle of September, I still have another week where I have to worry, you know, until I have to worry about it. I think, you know, that's probably unfortunate. Um, I think if you look out, you know, to your point, a quarter or two, I mean, that higher rate of, you know, balance sheet attrition is going to hit equities and it's going to hit multiples. And, you know, to your point about valuations, I mean, if we bottom here, if this is a true sustainable bottom, this would be the most expensive bottom we've ever put in on the S&P. Again, I think the question you have to ask yourself is, are you getting paid to take the risk? And I think the answer is pretty clearly no. Uh, fascinating. Uh, we'll see. We're de- we got some major data points headed our way over the next uh, few weeks. Samir, Jimmy, thanks, guys. Talk soon. All right, it's not a merger Monday, but it is a Tuesday, and we do have a deal. CVS is acquiring healthcare company Signify Health. The price tag's around $8 billion, $30.50 a share. It is an all-cash transaction. You can see Signify shares right there. Uh, there had been some hopes in the market, especially given reporting that there were a number of interested bidders that the price would exceed uh, $30 or $30.50 as it did. Uh, but CVS uh, comes out the winner uh, in unclear at this point whether there really were a lot of other competing offers, so to speak. UNH, for example, was expected potentially uh, have made a bid. Uh, unclear whether they did or not, what that was. Change Healthcare, of course, is a deal that UNH still has uh, looking for regulatory approval for. Um, but the overall trend here is an interesting one, which is CVS becoming much more of a, a healthcare company. Obviously, we already know they are an insurer. Uh, but as well now, 10,000 practitioners is what we're talking about here, or clinicians across what all 50 states. Uh, and Mike, it does put them in a position to obviously send people into your home, for example. Yeah. Sort of a new wave of, uh, or a new way of doing things in terms of medicine at this point for these larger organizations, all of which will continue to look, it would seem, for acquisition opportunities as well to sort of match. For sure. And interesting, you know, that the market does like the fact that CVS ended up with it in terms of uh, CVS itself being up 1%. And just general idea that I guess the more of that kind of chain that you control in terms of uh, patient visits, they have the pharmacy benefit manager, all of it. If all of it's based on managing costs and, 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 and essentially being somewhat efficient in how you deliver it, uh, deliver care, uh, y- you have to just be right there and, and not just essentially have it passed along from other providers. So uh, definitely interesting as a trend. I think it's, uh, you know, CVS, 
Stock's only 10% off its high. Not a lot of stocks that size, only 10% off their No, it is interesting. High. Obviously, we, uh, people still think of it for the, you know, their pharmacy, but really yes. this has become such a different company whatever. at this yeah. point. And again, they're talking about integrating home care and technology. Uh, we'll see uh, whether they are fully successful in, in, in implementing that, but a, a large deal for them uh, this morning, uh, again, at $8 billion. Perhaps not a huge windfall for Signify shareholders at this point, yeah. given previous reporting had sent the stock higher, although the private equity firms behind what was Signify or creating it certainly uh, have done extremely well uh, in creating value there. All right. Uh, still to come this morning, Ukrainian President Zelensky is going to virtually ring the opening bell this morning. That's going to happen right here at the NYSC. Uh, we'll monitor that. Some uh, comments today about uh, the trajectory, certainly, of the conflict between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Take a look at futures. We'll get to some other news regarding the Cardinal Health and DWAC and uh, Bed Bath. More Squawk in the Street continues in a moment. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Bed Bath & Beyond CFO Gustavo Alnal uh, died Friday by suicide just days after he briefed investors on the company's restructuring efforts. Our Courtney Reagan has the latest on that. Good morning, Court. Good morning, Carl. The tragic news of the death of Bed Bath & Beyond Chief Financial Officer on September 2nd does add to the company's turmoil. Board Chair Harriet Edelman confirmed Gustavo Arnold's death, noting the company's focus is on supporting his family and his team, and our thoughts are with them during this sad and difficult time. Arnell's death leaves open another executive seat. Former CEO Mark Trenton was fired at the end of June. A successor is still to be determined. The company eliminated its chief operating and chief stores officer roles as part of its strategy update on August 31st, plus announcing large layoffs, store closures, and financing to shore up liquidity. Now, the financing agreements for $500 million expanded more than $1 billion asset-backed revolving credit line and $375 million first-in-last-out facility with J.P. Morgan and Sixth Street Partners were finalized September 1st. Bed Bath & Beyond Trading does remain active with meme traders. About 40% of shares are currently held short and volatility remains high. In August, investors filed a class action lawsuit accusing Cohen and Arnall of artificially inflating Bed Bath's stock price. Stock sales in question for Arnall were both pre-planned 
as part of an agreement that he signed in April. In a filing last month, Bed Bath & Beyond said it was evaluating the complaint but believes the claims are without merit and would not comment on litigation when asked by CNBC. Now, quiver-quant tracking of Wall Street Bets mentions of Wall Bed Bath & Beyond does show it is the most mentioned individual name in the last day or so, mentions spiking on the news of Arnell's death. The Reddit discussion, though, leans towards holding on to Bed Bath & Beyond, share, Bed Bath and Beyond shares or call options. Carl? Uh, it is such tragic news, Court, uh, and uh, it's been pointed out there aren't many companies at the moment that have neither a full-time CEO or CFO, uh, and that, that management uh, restructure is going to be key uh, very quickly. Absolutely, absolutely. In that strategy update, they did name a head of Bed Bath & Beyond stores and a head of Bye Bye Baby stores. But yes, to your point, that CEO seat does remain vacant, and now the CFO seat is also, of course, vacant as well. So this is a very difficult time for the company, of course, and the tragic news does make it all the more difficult. Courtney Reagan on Bed Bath today. Court, thanks very much. Take a look at futures here, hanging on to some green to start, uh, obviously, a holiday-shortened week. Oil has turned around, uh, had lost some of its premium from the OPEC production cut over the weekend, uh, but currently getting closer to 88. We'll get the opening bell in about 10 minutes. Don't go anywhere. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Well, as we mentioned earlier, also keeping a close eye on a subject we've talked about now for months, the worsening um, crisis in Europe in terms of energy. Uh, it appears at this point that, for the most part, no Russian gas is going to be exported to the continent, which uh, previously had used as much as, uh, it had comprised as much as 40% of its uh, energy use. Uh, the Nord Stream pipeline has been closed. Um, Germany obviously building up its stockpiles of natural gas, as are others. Uh, the Fr French uh, relying, as they have for many years, on a huge nuclear uh, uh, plants uh, for uh, much of their energy. But even there, because of a drought and the lack of water, there have been some issues in terms of being able to actually cool the plants. And so that has come down. Then you've got the supply side. You've got inflation, UK electricity rates, a new prime minister there trying to say, no, we won't raise those rates, which what could be as high as $4,000 a year for the average customer. Mike, there are so many different parts of the yeah. story, uh, much of it leading to the idea of significant recession yes. uh, in Europe. Uh, and then beyond that, sort of on the trader side, both beneficiaries and potential losers on either side of that LNG trade in particular. For sure. And also just any energy dependent businesses, industries are looking like they're going to have you know, perhaps some rationing. Uh, interesting that natural gas itself, uh, it kind of peaked well ahead of this yes. the, on the on the storage news, really, on how much they were kind of stockpiling. And which then it did back good, off. Which is good news. In Very the sense good news. that it had not been expected they would reach the targets they have as quickly as right. they have. And now it's essentially weather dependent for the winter. And they're basically saying we have enough for a mild winter or a not so harsh winter. And maybe if that doesn't come to pass, you don't get lucky there, then you have to worry. Uh, but in terms of the electricity costs, that is filtering through. And the idea of bailouts of one variety or another, whether it's governments just essentially, you know, kind of 
uh, subsidizing energy consumption or, or however it might work, that's remains to be seen. And you have to imagine that there's going to be some kind of trading casualties along the way, too. And that's the other part of it. Yes. Uh, and or the real beneficiaries right, as well sure. along the, and or have the capacity. Those who contracted for capacity can actually break those contracts by paying damages and still make a right. lot more money selling into the open market. Yeah, right. Market strain is one thing we'll be watching for on European energy. By the way, Goldman today, uh, the market continues to underestimate the depth, the breadth, and the structural repercussions of the crisis, uh, we believe these will be even deeper than the 1970s oil crisis. That's Goldman commenting on. I mean, there's projections that UK disposable income goes down 10 in yeah. the next two years. It's incredible. It's a, it's Changes. a true crisis. Yeah. Um, we'll see. Uh, meantime, after the break, on a related note, uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky will deliver remarks prior to ringing the opening bell. That's moments away. Don't go anywhere. We are awaiting some comments from Ukrainian President Zelensky, who will virtually ring the opening bell in a moment. Uh, guys, his appearance is being framed as an effort to drive more foreign direct investment uh, in Ukraine, uh, inviting businesses around the world to invest in Ukraine's future. He has given some interviews uh, over the weekend, basically saying he's not interested in negotiating and that the United States, in his view, should name Russia a sponsor of terrorism, even as we got multiple reports today that Putin is scrambling for more weapons technology, even resorting to buying uh, some artillery from the North Koreans. So the story's moving along. And as you pointed out, uh, Carl, very much connected to our last subject of discussion prior to the uh prior to the break because, of course, how much pressure will be brought on Zelensky by European countries continues to be a, a, a question uh, for him to sort of sue for some sort of a peace, if it's possible to do so, given the pressure that their economies are going to be under as a result of a lack of energy supplies coming from Russia. There is also a little bit of a take uh, after the, you know, the announcement that Nord Stream is not going to reopen uh, for natural gas flows, that that's, in a sense, maybe the last piece of leverage that Putin has, uh, at least big one that we know about, uh, to, for, for, you know, to try and pressure European uh, allies. And it doesn't appear that the Europeans at this point are, are buckling in any way, yeah. despite what certainly is going to be a, a great deal of pain for uh, for parts of the population yeah. dealing with, at the very least, higher electricity bills. Right. It'll be interesting to see whether, for example, uh, there is a shift in strategy, at least in the UK, with Liz Truss, who's been spoken about in ways that maybe she's not as actively interested in external yeah. uh, government partnerships. Uh, certainly, Boris Johnson was a fierce defender of Zelensky and the Ukrainian effort, which, by the way, the counteroffensive does appear to be holding some some ground. Let's take a listen to these comments. ...to work for your benefit, for the benefit of your children and the one of your country. In Ukraine, we are fighting for everything that you have. We stand so that every Ukrainian would enjoy all the manifestations of freedom available to a free person in a democratic society. We have achieved significant results. We have united the whole world around our struggle for freedom. We are liberating Ukrainians' territory from the Russian army. We have already started renovated everything that was destroyed by the Russian terror. We are rebuilding our economy. We are giving you and your companies the opportunity to work together with us for the benefit of all us. Ukraine is the story of a future victory and a chance for you to invest now in projects worth of hundreds of billions of dollars to share the victory with us. Today, 
we kickstart a large-scale promotion campaign to attract investments. Advantage Ukraine. We will tell the world why Ukraine is a place for good investments and financial opportunities. I invite you to Ukraine. Invest in Ukraine. This will be your victory and a new success story for your companies. Slava Ukraini. Start your work. With that, the opening bell and the CNBC real-time exchange of the big board, uh, as you saw virtually, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky ringing the bell at the NASDAQ digital advertising company Integral Ad Science. Fascinating line, guys. We're rebuilding our economy, giving you and your companies the opportunity to rebuild with us and share in the victory. Yeah. Definitely some, some aggressive targets. Right. Targets, confidence, uh, I guess you have to, uh, you know, speak in those terms and try and, uh, and, try and look to the next step. Well, there's uh, an offensive going on in the southern absolutely. part in the Kherson region. They're trying to take, uh, take back land, obviously, that the Russians took early in the aggression. Yeah. Um, seems to be going okay, but always hard to know exactly based on the various reports that we get. Yeah, the, even just the estimates of, say, how many soldiers the Russians have lost. Do we know if it's really 50,000? And if it is, to what degree? Is that really ringing? in households in Russia that are used to so much uh, scarcity and drama, yeah. it's impossible to know. Tough calculus yeah. to figure out, you know, what brings about uh, movement on, on that side of things, yeah. Uh, for the time being, though, there's uh, 3941 as we uh, take a look at this, uh, the opening of this shorter uh, holiday-shortened week. Goldman, uh, Mike, over the weekend had an interesting note, uh, basically looking at how well understood September weakness is and that the trade after the trade yeah would be at least uh, a revamp in, in the back half of the month. And then you had the FT over the weekend arguing that the give back from SPAC uh, give backs <laughs> right. is, is bullish for equity, $75 billion with no place to go. Yeah, the idea is that, that, first of all, I think it's fascinating that everybody is attempting to account for every dollar of flow in and out. And they think they can do it, and they think they know at least the systematic flows and what that's likely to mean, all else being equal. All else is never perfectly equal, but uh, Goldman was making the point that there is this mechanical pressure on the markets based on volatility levels, where the CTAs are positioned, where, where you have the systematic uh, fund community moving toward, even if the market doesn't move, that perhaps they have to apply some pressure. Now, that was supposed to start today. That was supposed to be this morning. It doesn't seem to be the thing that matters, at least at the moment. Uh, but I do think it's fascinating that the September story is perhaps overstated in terms of exactly how weak it is or how reliably weak it is. Um, we had a market that went down at the worst 24 percent uh, in a way that no seasonal effects really should have told you that was going to exactly happen. So I think, it, you know, you take it all in, you realize that it's it's how, you know, the general climate of things um, and, you know, see how it goes. I mean, uh, at this point, I think you can take some heart very modestly in the fact the market's quite oversold internally in the short term, see if the market responds to that. If it responds to that, see if it's a real rally or just kind of a reflex bounce. And then that trade after the trade is what he's talking about. If you get a rally and then a pullback, if it's just a routine pullback, maybe you don't have to worry about the June lows getting seen again. I think, you know, again, you just sort of scribble the line on the chart. 
past what we, where we are right now and, 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 and see if it matters. Guys, we talked about Europe. We haven't yet talked about China, which uh, has, of course, been an important component overall of uh, sort of broadly speaking the market as well. I did note uh, shares of Alibaba, which uh, is usually we use as a bellwether uh, for the Chinese market over here, are down about 3.4%. More lockdowns. Um, they continue to follow the zero COVID policy in the country, uh, as had been dictated by President Xi Jinping. Um, and that continues to be the case. So you've got Chengdu. You've got certain parts of Shenzhen. They may be using different terminology, uh, but essentially uh, they have what I think they're up to as many as 60 million different uh, people in, in three different centers that are under some form of lockdown. Haven't heard from Eunice this morning, but uh, certainly await uh, yeah. some of her reporting, which usually brings us up to date in exactly what's going on. But that's most likely the weakness there. We've already seen the impact on the broader economy that these lockdowns have had and even uh, bringing some of the larger U.S. companies that rely on manufacturing there to consider and think about where else they can potentially move some of that manufacturing capacity as this continues. Right, and big picture, so you remove China as a potential source of global growth, you know, incremental global growth at a time when Europe is, is definitely seen as, as dipping back into recession. And the formula is all currencies weak relative to the dollar. And that's what's been going on. The Chinese currency uh, certainly been making new lows uh, against the dollar uh, and in Europe as well. And so the U.S. dollar index above 110 uh, hasn't been there again. We're talking about 20-year highs and effectively all-time highs in the, in the uh, age of the euro, right. in a sense. Um, and, uh, you know, what does that mean? Well, it means, in theory, that the U.S. is, is, is the destination for capital, uh, for safety purposes and for relative growth purposes. It also should help in the Fed's cause. I mean, if they're looking at tightening of financial conditions as part of their goal, that's one manifestation of it. 0. 0.9890. There you go. Time to take us on the road again, uh, yeah, Carl, well, I think. We, we were talking about doing a show from the UK. Yes, right? UK. Maybe with the or in Paris. Uh, squawk <laughs> on the street in Paris. Or. We got the Olympics in a couple of years. I'm not sure. We'll see if that, that, the, this true, currency that strength holds. hangs that on. Is, that is quite something. But um, you mentioned uh, the, the reshaping of certainly the Chinese manufacturing space. Great piece over the weekend in Bloomberg. The construction of new manufacturing facilities in this country over the last year, mm -hmm. up 116% versus 10% for overall construction growth. And it's just obvious, glaringly obvious, how purchasing managers, logisticians, CEOs yeah. are just making long-term decisions about the future. So, so of much making of that stuff. about the supply chain, obviously, yeah. that, pe that they've encountered, uh, the problems that have been encountered since the pandemic and as a result of so many things. Although it's not clear it's going to result in that much more employment, right. so much robotics is going to be deployed in many of these new manufacturing yeah. facilities. No, for sure. I mean, essentially, the, the pandemic and the supply chain issues reminded everyone that what seemed like the less expensive place to produce was not all in less expensive or less reli or, or more reliable. And, uh, and you know, even the, the labor cost differential is, is narrowed and, and, and it's really about labor availability. We'll see how that works out here. Uh, but no, I, I absolutely think the sort of capital uh, deepening, as they say, of the U.S. economy is underway. We mentioned... Um the, the prospect of moderating uh, consumer demand. And certainly there's some sell side notes this morning about that. Uh, City takes FDX uh, to a hold. Um, overall freight trends, especially train line freight, uh, is, is, uh, is not building up to the peak season you would expect ahead of a holiday. Uh, so they are wary on overall rails, but in this case it is gonna affect their rating on FedEx. Yeah, and it, um, 
you know, still stocks down one percent. It opened a little bit lower than that. Um, it, it is interesting that we did see a lot of talk of, of freight rates, trucking coming down hard. That was taken as generally good news on the inflation front. But what it means for for demand and whether you're going to get a real peak rush is an interesting question. And FedEx, I mean, it's one of those stocks that has, has looked cheap for a couple of years right now. Um, not a lot of earnings growth expected this fiscal year and next, but kind of supposed to hold together. Uh, and they're under a, you know, a little bit of a multi-year restructuring going on as well. So cautious about the, you know, what, what the latter half of this year is going to be, but I'm not sure if it changes the overall story or is ter- perfect shock to the market either, which had already taken the valuation down. Yeah. Bit of a recomposition of the board there as well, yeah. given that agreement they reached with D.E. Shaw uh, a couple of months back. Um, and Fred Smith, obviously, is now uh, chairman. Yeah. Um, Carl mentioned SPAC money coming back. Uh, that does lead us to at least a, a quick discussion um, of uh, Digital World Acquisition Corp. Leslie uh, reported on this on Squawk Box uh, earlier, and probably we'll have more in the 10 o'clock hour here on Squawk on the Street. Did DWAC, you know it in part because, of course, it is the SPAC that is in a deal to merge with uh, Truth Social, the, um, the platform reform President Trump. Um, social media platform, uh, they need 65% of their shareholders to vote in favor of extending the timeline for the SPAC to have in order to reach a deal uh, for one another year. Uh, apparently, this is reporting from Reuters, they have yet to reach that. Uh, I believe they have until noon today. Now, alternatively, the SPAC sponsor, a gentleman named Patrick Orlando, can actually, if he were to pay $3.75 million, get a three-month extension, which conceivably would buy more time and which he could then go out and continue to try to get 65% of the votes in favor. That's what you need, in favor of an extension. Uh, The SPAC is under a good deal of pressure. Uh, The SEC obviously has asked for a a lot of... uh, um, uh, a lot of disclosure. Uh, there are a number of subpoenas, things of that nature they're dealing with. Um, so a lot of document requests from the SEC. Still remains very much unclear whether this will actually get approved by the SEC. But certainly if, in fact, he doesn't put up the $3.75 million and the deadline passes, then this thing goes back to shareholders at roughly $10. Yeah. Uh, you're not seeing that decline right now. Which is confusing to some. It Why is. Why would you vote for 10 when you could You have to vote in favor <laughs> of the extension. Right. So it, what it really is is a retail base that probably is unaware. Uh, and you need a good proxy solicitor to actually go out and round them up. And, and if you don't votes, do that, yeah. you've got to get past the 65. If you don't, you simply, you know, but I believe they can try again. Um, and again, he can get at least three more months. That won't get them past what they need to to, to fulfill the SEC's requests but it will buy more, potentially more time. He, of course, Mr. Orlando, is in a position, if this is a successful spat, in other words, if they do close it, to make what could be hundreds of millions of dollars given the performance of the stock. You know, on the general notion of, you know, SPAC money going back to investors, you wonder what the what the next stop for that money would be, mm-hmm. right? You kind of tied it up in this structure where you knew you had, at least you're going to get your $10 back. Is that going to be the money that says, fine, I'll just put it in the S&P or, I'll, you know, uh, I'll throw it in small caps or I'll do another kind of hedge fund structure. It's an interesting 
I guess, thought experiment well, as it, to it's certainly being characterized what the risk appetite of that money is right now. Right. As, as forced savings, right? Yeah. Is essentially what you've been in for a And year. by the way, if you haven't lost money, I mean, if That's you're getting right. 10 back, you're, you're, you know, you've done better than the market by far. It's true. Uh, at yeah. this point. So you're not necessarily unhappy <laughs> with your SPAC trade if, in fact, you're your SPAC has been unable to do a deal and has reached its expiration and has decided to liquidate. Right. Uh, you are unhappy, however, you saw the index there at 39 cents in the dollar if, in fact, they've done the deal. Years have passed, and uh, there you are yeah. with your post SPAC not doing very well. Yeah. And there was the idea, too, that, well, so many stocks have down 80%, why aren't they finding good stuff to buy? But that's always the way it is. It never feels like it's safe to, you know. To, to buy the stuff that's been uh, been blasted. Finally, one of those mornings where uh, you're seeing some beat up names uh, lead PVH, for example. Airlines are in there too, and Reuters did have a piece early this morning. I think it was an international uh, dateline, basically arguing that corporates are are setting their travel budgets for next year on a 2019 baseline, um, which is interesting. Sort of. Trying, just trying to forget the last yeah, two let's, years. Yeah, let's do real back to normal. Right, yeah. and, and whether or not that drives some sort of marginal demand for corporate travel as we, as we get back to work. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. That would be the, the missing piece that I don't know that really anybody's counting on. You know, it's not baked in the numbers, in other words, I don't think. Uh, but it would be interesting if it came through, but you wonder if, if that is going to happen. Some decent performance uh, from airlines as the opening gains, though, are fading pretty quickly here. Dow's now up 20. After the break, we will get some eco data. Uh, first, though, it's time for the bond report. We are going to hear from Powell on Thursday. We will see uh, to what degree, if any, his remarks differ from Jackson Hole just over a week ago. And of course, ECB on Thursday, where the debate is really whether or not they go 75. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Rick Santelli here with live breaking news from CME HQ, S&P Global U.S. Services, PMI, and the Composite PMI. Now, these are August finals replacing the mid-month read. On the services side, 43.7 replaces 44.1, but it is still the lowest level since May of 2020 when it was 37.5. And if we look at the Composite, 44.6. That's versus the mid-month read of 45, so also lower and also lowest level since May of 2020. We'll have the ISM services index in about 12 minutes, but watching the service sector deteriorate, of course, is something to pay attention to, whether it's lingering supply issues, employment issues, it all comes home to roost and squawk on the street return after a short break. New report out of CBRE showing that Manhattan office leasing for the month of August hit its highest level since before the pandemic. Uh, but, David, how many times have we seen encouraging signposts that, I don't know, just show it's a tough hill? It's a big it, hill. It really is. We'll continue to monitor it because I think it is a, a fascinating subject. Uh, obviously, I think our viewers know where I stand on it to a certain extent in terms of especially for younger people who do need to come back and uh, the apprenticeship jobs in particular and the learning. But... Uh, very mixed picture. Uh, I think when you talk to business leaders, they would like to have people back in the office, at least perhaps they hope for three days a week uh, and some consistency there. Many companies are mandating it beginning next week. Uh, and we'll see whether, in fact, it actually happens. And it probably should be the most active month, right, since the pandemic. Uh, and you wonder at what rates. I mean, it's a combination of you know, volume and price. So uh, makes sense that there'd be a little more activity. You do hear that those clients, those co companies that are signing new leases are going for more space 
you know, per employee. Right. So there is a slight offset on that direction. Uh, it was interesting. Ackman actually addressed this with Andrew this morning on Squawk. Uh, he's bringing people back. I think he said five days. Yeah. Um, but his larger point was that remote work, the friction to change jobs is practically zero. Right. All you got to do is change your email address, which he argued is not a great design if you're looking for overall retention. Yeah, cultural firm. attachment is almost yeah. zero uh, via Zoom. Obviously, companies are trying to do things. Listen, it's big tech, though, that really is, has been the leader in terms of remote. When you're a software engineer, the idea that you're going to come back to an office, yeah. it's, it's unclear. And when you talk to the leaders of those organizations in particular, they, they've sort of said, yeah, you know, they're going to do what they want. And if I need, uh, until the leverage really returns, fully to being able to say, no, I need you in the office. And if it really makes sense, because that's yeah. a unique sort of a position where maybe it isn't as important in some way to have that sort of uh, well, a lot of those companies were like I don't know. Anyway. A lot of those companies were, were yes. dispersed anyway, but yes. I totally understand why the big banks are the ones that are most adamant about getting yes. people back. It's because the, the business itself is a commodity. It's a lump of money and a bunch of people. And if you don't emphasize the idea of culture that we have something at JP Morgan that City doesn't have and vice versa, then what are you actually, what are you as a company? Plus, they spend their entire year figuring out compensation down to the third decimal point of who deserves credit for what. That's what the business is on Wall Street. And you can't necessarily do that as easily. And it's a compliance culture. All those yeah, things together. Sure. No, there's All trust. Those All together. those a things lot of it's together. about trust. That. And it's an apprenticeship culture to a certain extent yeah. in terms of like, what is the value of that, you know, exactly to your point of, of an investment banker who, right. who never goes to see, you know, who never sees anybody <laughs> or talks to anybody. Sure. They obviously get on the road, they do that. But uh, yeah, it goes up and down the elevator every day. You're, you're real capital. Yeah. Well, we're in five days, not, not, not that it matters. And have matters. been for a really long yeah, time. Long time. Yeah. Long time. Uh, we lost some ground. Uh, markets are red. Let's get to Bob Pisani this morning. Hey, Bob. Yeah, I've been here since January, four out of five days at least. Uh, so a lot of people coming back to the NYSE as well, Carl. Uh, Post-Labor Day trading, it looks a lot like the pre-Labor Day trading. That is, we can't hold a rally. We started two to one advancing the declining stocks. The S&P's up 20. Now we're flat 15 minutes in, 20 minutes in, uh, with uh, down about... 10 points on the S&P. Can't hold the rally. What we are holding, though, is some of those gains in the commodity stocks. Been flip-flopping all over the place in the last couple months, but energy and metals. You want to watch the XME here because that has been moving recently. Uh, a lot of it's because of coal stocks. Uh, energy started up, is now flat. Uh, tech's down, and ARK Innovation is sort of a uh, proxy for growth around the world. That's down today. Look at the metal stocks. Now, these are Coal stocks, a subset of metals and mining, but Peabody Energy, Arch Resources, Consol, these are all big coal names. They're moving up, of course, uh, headlines overseas may be a lot tougher uh, over in Europe. Elsewhere, if you take a look at what's going on for the markets this week, Carl referenced uh, Powell talking. He's going to be doing a Q&A. This is why I think this is interesting uh, over at the, uh, the, um, the Cato Institute's 40th anniversary conference. So maybe we'll get a more nuanced commentary than the eight-minute speech he gave us that threw everybody into a tizzy. Then we'll have the ECB meeting on Thursday, and it seems divided between those who want 75 and those who want 50, very similar to the, uh, the um, central the markets here. Uh, and the debate here in the United States. And then the conference season kicks off, which I've talked about a lot recently. Normally doesn't matter that much, but you're going to get an enormous number of sell-side conferences starting today where you're going to have commentary from individual companies. And a lot has changed. Many of these companies haven't talked since mid-July. A lot changed now. We're going into mid-September, two months later. So Barclays, Evercore, uh, Wells Fargo, City's going to have a big uh, technology conference uh, coming up. Goldman Sachs has got a big retail conference coming up. So we may get some market-moving news from them. 
them in the next three or four days. Meantime, if you're a retail trader, your head is spinning. Remember the uh, the glorious days back in 2021 when we had the meme stock craze? We hit as much as Almost a quarter of all trading was retail at that time, but it has declined significantly. It's not been a good year for retail. Uh, Q1 2022, 17, it's about 17% this year, and that's very close to the historic averages. My thanks to my old pal, Larry Tab, who keeps track of this, providing the data for me uh, this morning. Now, we did see uh, retail trading pick up a little bit in August, still waiting for the final numbers, but likely given the sentiment we're seeing now, September is going to drop back down to that 17%. The other indicators of, of uh, you know, retail activity, Carl, are just terrible. There's the uh, American Association of Individual Investors bull bear index. Bullishness is half the historic average. Bearishness is about almost twice as high as the historic average. And of course, Carl, these are sentiment indicators, so these may be useful for some kind of uh, bottom right now, but certainly no sign that that's happening this week. Carl, back to you. All right, Bob, thanks for that. And uh, speaking of sentiment, we know a lot of it's driven by the trajectory of gas prices. Uh, AAA uh, today, 379 a gallon, 84 straight days down. Uh, we've been very lucky, uh, guys, uh, with hurricane season. It's been remarkably soft. And with wholesale gas now, 245, uh, the implications somewhere south of 350, maybe even closer to 330. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of amazing. And, you know, in the first, I don't know, six months of this year, the stock market traded essentially directly inverse to gasoline prices. That has been broken to a large degree as the stock market's had struggled to get out of its own way. And largely, I think it's it's what's going on in bonds right now. I mean, the two years back up to three and a half percent ECB, as Bob said, expected to raise this year. So we're kind of, again, kind of clenching up again uh, on the fixed income side for that rate move. But, yeah, really good for the for the real economy, for sure. What's happening uh, in gasoline? Right. Uh, and on that note, uh, 3900 again, back in play as we're just about seven points above. A quick reminder, you can catch us anytime, anywhere. Uh, just listen to and follow the Squawk on the Street opening bell podcast. We'll take a quick break as the markets are at Dow's down 125. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.